This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Everything is ablaze, including your uh, your head when it comes to uh, electricity. And of course, uh, global news just continuing to hammer the government uh, with more stats coming out of uh, of the electricity file, uh, including thirty seven thousand Ontarians, nearly thirty percent. Uh, of their income goes to paying electricity. Uh, this means that one-fifth of energy's distributors, 950,000 residential customers, uh, use between 25 and 400% more of their available income than the anti-poverty group uh, Low Income Energy Network recommends, which, uh, you know, we're, we're spending a lot of time uh, using the term energy poverty and talking about uh, how this affects people who are on the margins. I mean, if you're on the margin and, and your bill is is going up the way that uh, ours have been going up, uh, obviously it's going to push you into, into into some rough areas, including possibly disconnection. But what what we have to remember, as well as these poor people that that, that need our help and are, are living on the margins, this is affecting everybody. This is affecting everybody of every wage uh, structure, of, of everybody, and businesses, uh, people who have small businesses. Uh, it's crippling them as well, which in turn hire people to work and, of course, keep the economy moving. So, again, we are focusing a lot on those people that are on the margins, but it's important to remember that this affects everybody, everybody in Ontario, uh, not only private and business. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Krista Doust is with us, Director of Family Services, Neighbor to Neighbor Centre, a Hamilton-based member organization of the Low Income Energy Network in Ontario, and is with us now. Hello, Krista. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. Thanks. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, tell, tell us about being a member organization of the Low Income Energy Network in Ontario. Oh, well, I think it's uh, for a number of years we've been a, a member of the Low Income Energy Network um, group just to keep a, keep track of the issues that are affecting those who are living in poverty um, around I- issues of how, how high bills are um, and, you know, to sort of understand what are the stories, what, what, how are people being affected by these, um, especially now, how people are being affected by um, these high electricity rates. We certainly are hearing lots of stories uh, lately. How bad is it, Krista? Well, I can speak from the perspective of Hamilton, working at Hamilton Mountain as an organization here that um, runs the Low Income Energy Assistance Program and the Ontario Electricity Support Program. We're seeing that uh, numbers who are coming through our doors with needing emergency help have tripled um, compared to numbers from last year. It's really, uh, there's, there's a real burden and a taxing on our system, I think. Um, it's very difficult, especially during December. It's such a... Um, it's, it can be a tough time for a lot of families, um, but certainly if you're just on the margins, as you had as you had uh, mentioned earlier, then having this bill come in that's sort of a surprise, um, a much higher than you're used to, that can just send you right into um, debt. It's uh, really really troubling for folks. So, as an organization, what can you guys do? How do you help? Well, we can help people to avoid getting disconnected, and if they have been disconnected with, from their electricity, we can uh, do an application to assist them with um, up to a maximum of $500. It is, an, it is a uh, one-time emergency assistance within the, the year. Um, we can also help people to apply for the credit if they haven't received the credit on their bill and they are low income. Um, we can assist to kind of reduce their bill 
a little bit. Um, you, you know, you, you can certainly understand, uh, you know, from a, a perspective of any business that, you know, if customers don't pay, they can't continue with the service. But is disconnection the answer here? I mean, we're just hearing these horrific stories of 1,400 people, over 1,400 families that were that uh, had been disconnected and then and put back on by Hydro One. Um, right, yeah. is, is this the answer? Is, I, I'm not sure disconnection is the answer, although it is, uh, as you, as, you know, as a business, you do have to yeah. um, consider some of, you, you know, you do have to keep your business running. Um, disconnection might not be the answer, um, but I do think there are other, other ways. I think the bigger issue is around poverty and the bigger issue is around these rising electricity rates if some of those can and if some of those things can be tackled then i think um we're going to see there's there'll be less need for disconnection right um and so really i think attacking more of the root makes makes more sense how much uh, you know obviously whether uh it's food banks or or anybody else who or any organization that helps people the way that your organization does i mean it's an ongoing thing it's a 12 month of of the year thing uh and you have the challenges that you traditionally always have how much lately has electricity been a factor do people come in and say this is what's hurting me i mean as opposed to the other challenges that they face Absolutely. Um, we're seeing more people access our Christmas program saying like this Christmas is going to be a real struggle for us. Um, and, you know, and we need a little bit of extra help at this time of the year. Um, we're also seeing folks say, I have to make the choice between um, buying groceries at the store or buying, uh, you know, paying for my elect- uh, paying for my mortgage or paying for my rent and paying for my electricity bill. These aren't choices that anybody wants to make. They're, they're nightmare choices, really. Um, Nobody should have to pay. Like the the ideal would be to not be able, not have to pay thirty more than thirty percent of your income on housing costs, and that hmm. includes like electricity, utilities. So these conversations that people have, and that have made the media lately in regard to disconnection, none of this stuff surprises you at this point. I'm guessing. No, it doesn't surprise me. I think it, it's a it's an issue that's just only going to continue um, until something is done. Really. Uh, obviously, uh, come January, we're going to see another spike. And uh, also implementation of cap and trade. Are you anticipating more uh, more demand once that happens? Have you thought about that at all? Um, it's hard for me to know exactly and to predict what what some of those things, what the impact of some of those things might be. What I know right now is we don't see an end in sight. We see that this is going to continue to be busy. We're going to continue to see people struggling um, and continue to see people that are. Um, kind of plunging into poverty who are kind of maybe just just making it before people working two jobs, uh, minimum wage, precarious employment, um, plunging into poverty because they really are finding it an incredible squeeze. And, you know, you bring up a valid point, Krista, is that mm-hmm. it's not like there's some sort of help or improvement on the horizon. It's not, um, no, I don't think, you yeah. know, even with food banks, we always, we, we certainly hear that demand is always increasing, but it always seems to be something we can manage. This right. seems like it's, you know, it's just going to keep becoming a challenge and an issue for you. It certainly feels that way at this point. Um, I think there is Hope. I think there are decisions that can be made to to and maybe uh, you know things that can improve. But at this point, um, I, I'd be I'm interested to see what what will happen. Hmm. And you don't. Uh, there's nothing that you're hearing from uh, elected officials or government that, that that gives you some optimism moving forward on this. Any help? You know what? I I I really can't speak to that. I, I think that um, I think the biggest thing is just 
understanding what's happening at a local level and seeing, um, you know, how neighbors are struggling and doing our our best to try to um, help in, in any way we can. Krista Douse has been with us, Director of Family Services, Neighbor to Neighbor, a Hamilton-based member organization of the Low Income Energy Network in Ontario and on the front lines uh, trying to keep people uh, in their homes with power on. Krista, thanks very much for the time and insight. Keep up the great work. Great. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Global News did the expose earlier on in the week and are continuing to hammer away at this story uh, and bringing to the attention of Hydro One one specific family uh, that had fallen into energy poverty due to no fault of their own. They actually got caught up in one of the billing mistakes um, I don't know. So uh, anyway, uh, after being humiliated uh, on television and in front of the news, um, Hydro One has decided to reverse its policy and rehook uh, the over 1,400 families, reconnect the over 1,400 families that uh, had fallen off uh, this year. But I mean, the stats, t- and, and as they continue to, to, to hammer away at this, thousands spending 30% of their household income on electricity, 30%. Almost 213 Hydro One customers spent 10% or more of their disposable in- uh, income on bills, and 37,000 Ontarians, uh, nearly 30% of their income went to uh, paying electricity bills. Uh, we'll take a quick call. Uh, phone line's always open, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Norma's on the line. Norma, how are you? How are you coping with this? Fine. Uh, no, I just, you know, I was a little amazed this morning, first time walking my dog for a while, and <clears throat> I noticed in my area in Aldershot, there's not the lights that there used to be. Oh, Christmas lights. Christmas yeah, lights, yes. Yeah. And a lot of people have cut back. It's unfortunate when it gets, uh, you know, and again, we're talking a lot about, uh, of course, the people who are on the margins and, and, you know, for them, it's power on, power off, but it affects literally everybody. And when you talk about, you know, what you're talking about, you know, people may say, well, that's frivolous, that's that's other, but, you know, people are forgetting that this all creates business, this all creates commerce. Uh, you know, business, small business owners are feeling the same thing. I mean, oh, they're sailing, the, they're feeling the same pinch. It's just not the people who are on the margins who, of course, we're talking about, who they're literally plunging into darkness. That may not be the case for the majority of us, but it does affect everybody's budget in some way, doesn't it? No, well, I just feel myself, I mean, even if, well, I'm not saying could afford, but, you know, why give it to them? You yeah, know, this yeah. is is my uh, philosophy i mean you know you have to cut down i would cut the first thing i cut down is my electricity because i just don't want to pay them yeah it's not like you're getting anything for it you no, know right, yeah absolutely yeah it's a necessity all right thanks for the okay. call much appreciated uh phone lines always open 905-645-3221 star 9900 on your cell let's bring in todd uh, tom adams independent energy and environmental consultant he is with us now hello tom how are you today just great scott thanks so, lot. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, lots in the news this week in regard to, of course, uh, the PR nightmare, which was Global News' expose on on Hydro One and the and bringing a personal note to the families that uh, uh, this is hurting and such. And now finding out that uh, in some cases, up to thirty percent of household incomes are spent on electricity. I, I guess. Th- you know, this has obviously come to a, a, a head, Tom, and, and it's the point where people are talking about it all the time now. But 
the really sad part is there's not much relief in the, or there is no relief in the future from any of this, is there? I mean, we still don't know what the mistake was and how they're going to correct all this. Yeah, uh, uh, I think you're really on to something here. Um, uh, Hydro One, of course, you, you know, is, is um, the utility at the center of a lot of this. They tend to have lower income um, uh, customers. Their customers tend to use more power than the rest of it because they have um, a lower penetration of natural gas, access to natural gas. Um, so there's a you know a double whammy there: higher usage um, and, uh, and and of course uh, more difficulty paying. Um, uh, so you know Hydro One is reconnecting uh, customers um, uh, in 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 response, but that in uh, again you know this this um, uh, issue of customers getting disconnected reconnected whatnot it, it, it there's it, it raises another question um, uh, in the case of customers that can't pay you know so if the utility finds themselves in, uh, with a customer in arrears the utility um, doesn't suffer the the utility is able um, uh, under our regulatory rules to pass on their costs um, so that becomes, you know, a new cost center for the utility to recover from the customers who do pay. Um, and, and, you know, so these, um, uh, you know, campaigns to stop disconnections, you know, are, sh- sh- you know, short-term benefit for, for you know, some individual customers. But the, um, uh, you know, on, on a bigger picture level, the consequences for the customers who are, you know, faithfully paying their bills, that, that needs to be taken into account as well. The, the underlying problem here is that just electricity's gotten to be way too expensive for a lot of people. Uh, you know, it, they talk about, and we had uh, the Hydro One spokesperson on yesterday, who I, I, I got to give him credit for even coming on because I didn't think that they would. He alluded to. Uh, the fact that he's new now, a lot of new people are coming in because it's been privatized, and that they're going to get a better handle on running all of this than the past government did. Uh, It didn't come out and say it in those words. I'm using those words, but that's sort of what he alluded to us. It was basically like, you know what? Things were handled wrong in the past. Now they're going to be handled differently. What do we take from that? Well, you know, those are... um encouraging words but you know just to keep a kind of realistic perspective on this um, uh, you know for for all the difficulty hydro one customers are having paying their bills and other utility customers the 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 logo of the distribution utility that happens to appear on your bill um, is even in the case of Hydro One, relatively small portion of the overall cost of electricity. Yeah. Um, and so, is Hydro One taking the fall now for really the government's uh, mistakes? Well, uh, Hydro One has you know serious problems with efficiency of its own. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, um, Hydro One should be 
completely off the hook. There, there are two distribution utilities in Ontario that have not been able to control their costs over the last 10 years, Hydro One and, and Toronto Hydro. Um, uh, that, th- those you know, are, are, are a serious concern. By and large, most of the utilities have kind of been running their, their P's and Q's and keeping their rates uh, uh, you know, f- uh, pretty close to the rate of inflation. Um, but you know, so so there there are some outliers, and uh, and those outliers, you know, <laughs> belong in the name and shame category. But at the same time, we've got to recognize that um, the far bigger problem is not the distribution portion of the power bill; it's the rest of the power bill yeah. uh, where the major inflation has been going on. Uh, whoever's to blame at the end of the day for uh, Ontarians, it's the bottom line. How far does this bad PR go? This seems like it's something that is not going away this time, Tom. Yeah, you, you know, um, well, one of the big factors here is that historically Ontario electricity costs were uh, quite reasonable by comparison with other you know, uh, uh, utilities in Canada and the United States. Now we've got the most expensive electricity in Canada. Um, uh, we, we we are surpassed by a few states in the United States, um, uh, but we're in the top 20 percentile and rising. Uh, we've got the fastest rising power rates in North America. Um, uh, we we built our economy. We built the, you know our housing stock, our industry. Uh, you know, uh, uh, by and large, it was all built during the uh, you know an expectation that electricity costs would be reasonable. And so we, you know, built in our economy accordingly. Now costs are not reasonable, (laughs) um, far beyond reasonable and rising. So we're in this difficult period of adjustment. Those, you know, people that, you know, are today living with electric water heaters and baseboard heaters, oh, my goodness, they have a terrible problem. Those industries that are out there in electricity-intensive sectors, they're producing things like abrasives, um, uh, uh, and, you know, all different kinds of manufactured products. You, you just can't do it without a lot of electricity. Well, you know, Ontario's looking like a terrible place to do business. So this this wrenching problem of shifting from being, uh, you know, a place where we had relatively stable you know, moderate cost electricity to a place where we don't have stable uh, uh, costs and costs are keep going up, that, that's just an awful problem. And, you know, you talk about, and you alluded to this, people who were being disconnected and such and that are on the, the margins, they get help for now, but these bills are all going up again January 1 with cap and trade and such, so that's going to put even more pressure on on these people like these like these are very short-term solutions are they not won't they be disconnecting or reconnecting the same 1400 families a year from now uh, oh yeah it, it, like it, um, uh, moratoriums on disconnection really don't grapple with the underlying problem and and in some ways can make the underlying problem worse um I, the reality of the of the of, of the energy distribution business is there there are some customers who abuse those uh, privileges yeah. uh, that arise around um, uh, w- winter disconnection moratoriums and stuff like that. It, 
Now, but, you know, for the, for the, for the great bulk of, of uh, low-income customers that are in real trouble, where, what, what I think really needs to happen here is, is a, they've, they've got an income problem and, and they need the benefit of a focused you know, program for, for uh, uh, assistance. The mo- most recently announced uh, provincial program, the HST relief um, on power bills, uh, borrowed from the NDP uh, platform, that uh, um, kind of cross-the-board relief confers a, a relief benefit on both the, the, the high-income and the low-income households. So we're really not targeting the, mm. the, 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 the support. It's just one of many problems with, yeah. uh, you know, this kind of boutique-type ca- tax cuts that uh, are so inefficient. Good point. Tom Adams has been with us, independent energy and environmental consultant. Tom, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's uh, move back to the U.S. presidential election. Oh, my goodness, we haven't talked about it today. How is that possible? Because we've been too busy talking about soaring electricity rates, that's why. All right, uh, Donald Trump, uh, we're still watching uh, the fallout of the U.S. election and uh, all the stories coming out of the United States of America as he uh, picks his cabinet and such and and figures out exactly what direction he's going to take the country in and tweets the whole time. But what I think people didn't expect is the stock market and the economy to, to, to go upwards, to, to trend upwards. And it seems this has been happening since shortly after the announcement that he was, uh, the election results announced that, of course, he was going to be president of the United States. Pre-election, it was everything was heading south. If this happens, it's going to be anarchy. It's going to be hell. It's going to be, well, it's going to be anything but things going up. Uh, why is this happening? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today? Good afternoon. Just doing fine, thanks. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, how do we explain this, Ian? I mean, uh, you know, it was supposed to be doom and gloom, and now all of a sudden people seem to be optimistic. Well, I think the people that were predicting doom and gloom before uh, were not market analysts. Um, they were political types, you know, uh, people on Parliament Hill, people on the uh, in Washington, D.C., who were in the political world, uh, who don't really have a very deep understanding of the business uh, world of business and economics. Uh, and I, I say that not as any kind of a cheap shot. I'm just saying that they just thought that, that he would be a disaster. Therefore, that would produce disastrous economic results in markets. Um, in fact, the way the market's acting, I think, is, is very rational. That is to say, first and foremost, he's talking about stimulus of $500 billion to $1 trillion. That's real money. And that's going to generate some growth. And that's going to generate opportunities for an awful lot of businesses. And so they see that. And uh, then they also, the other uh, important thing is is that he is going to deregulate across the economy massive amounts of deregulation um, in uh, oil and gas, in financial services, in healthcare, and pharmaceuticals, in many parts of the economy. And what these regulations have done collectively have imposed an awful lot of costs on business. And so they've ratcheted up the cost of doing business. So what the markets are saying is looking at at, at Trump and saying, or concluding, I should say, what they're concluding is that he's going to drive down, reduce the costs that have been imposed on business, and they're going to be able to make more money. 
So, you know, you add uh, those, you connect those dots, and um, and then you conclude that uh, this is going to be uh, a good time to be a company in the United States. And so I think that that's why the markets are reacting that way. Of course, the flip of that is, is that that should be bad news for uh, people in other countries, because businesses in other countries that face higher cost structures, such as Europe, such as Canada, are going to be some of these businesses, not all, but some will be sorely tempted to say, you know, maybe it's time to relocate to the United States with the uh, growth opportunities there, the deregulation going on. So the good news for the American business is, of course, bad news for Canadian business or European business. Why didn't we hear in in, in why didn't we hear more about this during the actual? Uh, run up to the election, and you did talk about pundits uh, looking at it from a more political point yeah. of view than, of course, a, a business point of view. But did Americans? Would have Americans? Uh, did you, for example, or, or people like you, see this coming? Could you? Did you project this? Some did. Well, first off, we didn't project that Trump was going to win. Yeah, good point. <laughs> That's a separate question. We, ne- we never I, got that far. <laughs> yeah, I will be very frank. I'm not going to try and uh, you know re- revise history. I did not think Trump was going to uh, win the election. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, when I looked at his platform, and I certainly looked at it before the election, I thought, my goodness, if this guy ever does get elected, not that I thought he was going to get elected, but if he ever did, I, I said, you know, the business committee is just going to be happier than, than, than you know, than a pig in mud, mm-hmm. <laughs> to use an old farm phrase, um, and uh, because of the the massive cuts, the rat massive reduction in the corporate income tax from thirty five percent to fifteen percent, reduction in the pay, the uh, the tax to patriate foreign capital from abroad back home to the states from reducing it from thirty five to ten percent. I mean, these numbers were there, and anybody who understands business or economics saw that this was huge opportunities for business. But most, the vast majority of people did not think he was going to win the election, so it really didn't matter what he was promising. And it was only after he won the election uh, that, you know, it became much, um, people started to focus on this. But to answer your question very quickly, I mean, elections are generally followed most uh, uh, carefully, in a, you know, by political journalists in Washington and in Ottawa, and most political journalists are not trained in business or economics, so they tend not to focus on those sorts of things. Um, they focus more on the, uh, you know, the scandal of the day and who insulted whom and how did they insult them and that kind of thing, rather than on um, economic uh, uh, promises and platforms. What were your thoughts on former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney's uh, comments? He spoke out uh, this week and, and sounded optimistic and, uh, and, and didn't seem to see the doom and gloom. <laughs> I don't either, by the way. It, I, I, will, I want to immediately, I don't want anyone to ever accuse me of saying, you know, you're, you're sounding a different tune. Yeah. In the right after the election, because of the shock of it, I think many people, and I wasn't predicting doom and gloom, but I was certainly saying, my goodness, this is going to create a lot of uncertainty, mm-hmm. and this is going to drive down the market. And, and so everybody forth. said that, Ian. Yeah, everyone yeah, said that. Because we just didn't know. Yeah. Like, first off, we were just so shocked by the fact he got elected. Yeah. Secondly, that shock fed into, well, what's going to happen now? Because he's obviously very different from Obama. But once, what I'm getting at, is once the shock wore off and we started to dig deeper into his uh, uh, platform and into his promises, and we started to make judgments and say, well, you know, I don't really think he's going to do that, even though he promised that over there. Uh, You know, I don't think he's going to deport 11 million illegal people. I don't think he's going to ban all Muslims. You know, once you start parsing and going through and filtering what he's saying and say, does this make sense? And because you know that not all things that are said on a campaign trail 
uh, ultimately end up as public policy. And then you say, gee whiz, I see where he's going now, once you set aside the outrageous stuff. He's really, I think, going to be uh, a variation, another version, uh, Reagan 2.0. Uh, and I mean by that, business will love it, much lower taxation, much lower levels of regulation, easier to make money, that sort of thing, less red tape. And so that's why I don't think that, and I agree with uh, former Prime Minister Mulroney, I mean, there's some things that people may find uh, they be very unhappy with. You know, the fact there will be no carbon tax, he's going to roll back some of the emissions regulations, some of the environmental regulations, but it's not the end of the world, it's not the end of the universe, it's not the, you know, World War III. It's going to be a, a different administration, a much more conservative administration. It's going to be much more pro-business um, and much less enamored with government regulations and red tape on business. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of people who say, well, gee whiz, that, that's going to be, that's going to be um, contribute towards growth and, uh, and job creation. I remember uh, during the Reagan years, specifically after he was elected, uh, boy, he, he was a punching bag for comedians and, oh, yeah. and the media and such. Yeah. And, and, and it was kind of a farce at the time. And then when he passed, all of a sudden, everybody's screaming and yelling what a great president he yeah. was. Are we going to have the same thing happen here, do you think? We might. We might. I've actually suggested there's parallels there. I mean, at the beginning, he was demonized. And I remember it vividly because I just started graduate school. I'd worked for 10 years in a bank, and I came back to school. So I hadn't been in the university. And there I was with all these people who are, you know, way to the left. Because mm -hmm. universities are not typical and representative of the mainstream of public opinion. And these people are saying, World War III, end of the world, you know, real, unbelievable hysteria. Ronald Reagan is, is dangerous. He was going to start a war, and on and on and on. And, 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 and I think that hysteria, which c continued for, my goodness, at least two, three years into his presidency and well into his first term. In fact, it even went into the beginning of his second term over the debate about Star Wars. And mm. then people started to realize, you know, just as the passage of time, they said, you know, he really isn't the demon and the bad guy <laughs> and the monster that uh, his enemies have portrayed him to be. And then they started to focus on what he was saying and what he was doing, and he grew on them because they realized he wasn't a freak, he wasn't a monster, he wasn't this ogre who was going to destroy the world. And then they started to look at what he was actually doing and saying, and then, as I said, he grew in popularity, and by the end of the second term, he was a deeply, I think it's fair to say, a deeply loved figure. And, of course, he was older and that sort of thing. But if Trump moderates, I'm talking the, 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 the nastiness that was there during the campaign towards women and minorities, if he gets rid of that, doesn't do that again, yeah. and, uh, and then just focuses on, you know, the stuff that's very popular, like, you know, keeping jobs in America and bringing back jobs to America and that sort of thing, he could turn out to be someone similar uh, to Reagan if he sticks to those, let's call them bread and butter issues that are what I think was what really did elect Donald Trump. I don't think that I'd, I've had debates with Americans on this. I don't believe that, you know, 60 million Americans are racist, sexist, homophobic people. They didn't go out saying, gee whiz, I want to find myself a real racist so I can vote for him for president. I just don't believe that. Yeah, me neither. I'm not saying that there's, I'm not denying there's racism in the United States. There's racism everywhere. There's sexism everywhere. I don't believe that was what motivated them and drove them 
to support uh, to support Trump. It was when I drive through some of these rural areas of the states, and I do. I mean, I was this last June, and I went to Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, drove through rural Ohio, rural Pennsylvania, yeah, and you can see. The poverty there. You, yeah. I don't mean they're starving to death. They're not. Yeah. But my God, they're going. They're they're really having tough times. And and that I think was what drove them. They saw him, however realistic or unrealistic his promises, they saw him as hope that their lives would change for the better. And I think that's why they voted for him. If he had not been as outrageous as he was, if he had not ticked everybody off the way he did, yeah. uh, could he still have won? It almost sounds like I'm about to say if he had done that, would he have won? But he won anyway. Yeah. So if he had done the opposite and not taken that approach, do you think he would have gained the uh, gained the momentum that he did? You or know, did he, he have to do that in order to get there? That's an excellent question you've asked. But no, I'm going to make the counterargument, sort of. If he had just focused on all the economic stuff, you know, mm-hmm. Washington's corrupt. They, you know, they're not looking after you. They're, you know, selling you down the road to China or Mexico. I don't believe this, by the way, but I'm just saying, if he had said that, in other words, if he'd been Bernie Sanders for the Republicans, he probably would have clobbered Hillary Clinton. Mm. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders was was deeply loved in the Democratic Party. And, in mm-hmm. fact, the people that stayed home, her Hillary's vote in the Rust Belt states dropped across the five states by about five million. Yeah. And those were, the, I, I believe, my interpretation is, those were the Bernie Sanders voters who said, I'm just not going to support Hillary Clinton. Yeah. And I think if he had cut out all the, you know, the racism and the, yeah. the sexism, the sexist comments and the racist comments, you know, the anti-religious, anti-Muslim comments, I think he could have clobbered her in a landslide. I mean, because there was so much deep unhappiness about the, you know, the state of the economy, especially in the rural and the suburbs. It's only in the big cities that people are really doing well. You know, San Francisco and mm-hmm. Chicago and New York and that sort of thing. You get outside of those cities. You drive through rural Pennsylvania, as I do each year, going down to Hilton Head every April. And my goodness me, it just takes your breath away. There's two Americas in the States. There's the America of the cities that are doing very well, that many Canadians know about, because we visit the American cities, and we see all that wealth and prosperity. You go into the rural, and the quasi-rural, and the semi-rural, and the burbs, and I'm, it's a completely different United States. Yeah, good point. And they're the people that voted for Trump. Uh, the lot was made about the carrier deal and bringing back a 1,000 jobs to this plant um, in, in Indiana and such. Now you, the union leader, one of the union leaders, is speaking out saying it's not what it appears What's your take on all of that? Well, first off, I'm not, that's not, I, I, I'm, I'm a big believer in free trade, so you can already figure out I'm not a big fan of what Donald Trump is saying about NAFTA, or for TPP for that matter. So, but I'm separating my economic analysis from political. What he did on that deal is going to be very, very popular, because that's the sort of thing they were demanding. That's what Bob, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Bernie Sanders was arguing yeah. for in the campaign, you know, getting more hands-on as a leader who's going to go and confront these CEOs who are exporting jobs to Mexico and China. Well, that's exactly what he's doing. He's confronting these companies, by, and the, the people in these communities that where they're making, you know, $15, $20, $25 an hour, they're blue-collar workers, they finally see somebody sticking up for them. So although I think what he's doing is bad economics, I mean, that's not the way you run an economy. If you want to run a strong and prosperous economy, I don't think that's the way you do it. You do it by creating the conditions that uh, are going to be conducive to uh, yeah. companies investing uh, in the U.S. 
and um, or your own country. But on a political level, I, I'm sure that this is resonating in rural Ohio and rural Pennsylvania and the Rust Belt states. They must be sitting there just cheering, uh, saying, finally, somebody's standing up to, you know, the big fat cats of these companies that are taking our jobs from us. But as you mentioned, I mean, uh, in the end, this is political because he can't keep doing this. I mean, he can't. can't, uh, It's not sustainable, is it? No, because he had to give some uh, benefits, corporate, whatever you call them, goodies, uh, tax expenditures. I mean, the irony is left uh, wing and right wing politicians seem to do the same. I mean, Kathleen Wynne is doing the same thing in Ontario, and I've Mm -hmm. been very critical of it because, you know, uh, the government is essentially picking winners and losers. Yeah. you go in and say, you know, you stay here and I'm going to give you X millions of dollars of tax rebates or benefits. I mean, the government is really critting, you know, picking the winners and losers, and they're giving an unfair advantage to that company versus all the other companies that didn't get such a deal. And and that's why I, I argue, you know, you, we want to focus on the overall competitiveness, you know, the cost of doing business. And, and so focusing on things like whether one supports a carbon tax or not, things that reduce your cost of doing business, you know, ensuring you don't put on a, a heavy carbon tax, that you don't drive the minimum wage to the roof as they've done in the states in some states and in Canada. Those are the kinds of things that cause or motivate firms to leave or to invest in labor-saving technology, including robots. So how does this, and this will be your last question, how does this affect Trudeau's plan moving forward? How will it affect Canada? It hasn't so far, and he seems to be doubling, and I would even say tripling down. But I, it's a long way to 2019. He's up for a re-election in 19. And, and I think that as the next year unfolds, the economy I'm talking and it becomes more clear what Trump is doing and has done. And I'm talking about reducing the corporate taxes and the repatriation tax of foreign investments and, and uh, you know, ensuring that those um, emission standards are re- reduced. And as we see the gap emerging between Canada and the United States in terms of cost of doing business, I think that it's going to dawn on people that these policies he's rolling out, all of these various progressive policies, CPP increases, and of course in Ontario, electricity rates going through the roof because of the feed-in tariff and so forth. People, more and more people, I think there's going to be a backlash, and more and more people are realize, are going to realize that this is going to hurt us economically and in our wallet, and we're going to lose companies, and we're going to lose jobs. And I, I think he's a smart politician. And uh, I think he's uh, has a much better understanding of public opinion than uh, Justin Trudeau does than Premier Wynne, even though they're both liberals. And so I think that you could see him walking back from some of these policies, not canceling them so much, but roll, extending them and saying, okay, instead of phasing in over five years, we'll phase it in over 10 or 15 years, which is to really water it down. I could see him doing that because I think he wants to be reelected in 2019. And of course, Trump will give him the avenue to do that, won't he? Precisely. He'll yeah. say, she was the devil made me do it. We the have to. The other side. Yeah, there's uh, a scapegoat. He's doing it, so we got a match. Yeah, there's the scapegoat. Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, remember you used to be able to pay? And use, you know, put your credit card in. Hey, I'm talking to you on the plane. Uh, there's a phone in the back of the seat in front of me, and uh, now I'm talking to you. Uh, now I guess it's different because everyone's got one. Uh, it, it's a slippery slope. I find it. it's up there with uh, putting bags in the overhead compartment. You know, as soon as they started charging people for bags, all of a sudden nobody was standing around in the carousel. Instead, all those people, that, that lineup is now when you get on and off the plane as you wait for people to uh, 
to take their trunks out of the overhead baggage compartment. Uh, it, it's just really just pushed the problem onto the plane. From the baggage carousel, instead of the crowds and the, the rioting at the baggage carousel, now it's actually happening on the plane uh, when you're getting off and on. So between that and telephones, I don't know. I think you're asking for trouble. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Glenn Graham is with us, Graham Aviation Consulting, and he is with us now. Hello, Glenn. How are you today? Pretty good. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for taking the time to uh, join us. What are your thoughts on this? And is it just a matter of time before we have to allow this? Yeah, I, well, you know, basically uh, it's kind of uh, kind of interesting now with cell phones uh, possibly being allowed on planes that uh, the myth's been, uh, myth's been busted. Um, you know, for the longest time you'd hear before uh, taking off that uh, you had to turn off your cell phone because it would uh, mess with the uh, the plane's <laughs> navigation devices and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when in fact, uh, you know, the reason why uh, why cell phones weren't uh, weren't allowed was that uh, you know they clog up the networks. Instead of bouncing off of one tower, your cell phone would bounce bounce off of uh, several towers, and uh, it would clog up the networks. Now with uh, Wi-Fi, we can use our cell phones. That's, I think it's a great idea. So uh, so there is no technical reason why or interfering with the plane or the flight or the operation of the plane. None of that's valid anymore. Is that correct? No, no, no. Uh, basically, when cell phones uh, came out and, uh, you know, with uh, flights, you've got uh, tens of thousands of people flying overhead. Uh, every, if everybody was using their cell phone, I guess on land, your cell phone, uh, you know, from your car or vehicle or from, from your house bounces from tower to tower. Right. But uh, um, what happens now is, uh, you know, basically you're flying along and your cell phone will bounce off multiple towers and you'll clog up the network. So the, the uh, federal communication uh, people in the states, not the FAA, and the CRTC here in Canada, not uh, Transport Canada, uh, you know, ban the use of cell phones because they just clog up the network. So there is still a valid reason for not doing this then? Oh, yeah, yeah. But with, with Wi-Fi... It's irrelevant. It's it's irrelevant, you know. Uh, now, not getting into uh, the technology of how they're going to go about doing it. Uh, you know, an aircraft overhead is a great uh, a great cell tower, so I'm sure with, uh, with Wi-Fi uh, you'll be able to make the, the, the uh, telephone call and, uh, yeah, it won't affect uh, or won't clog up networks. You know, I remember the day before cell phones when you can actually put your credit card into the seat in front of you and there'd be a handset there and you yep. could actually call people. And it was never really an issue then. So why is it now? Well, you know, reading the articles, uh, I guess uh, air crew and uh, you know, the flight attendants, they're worried that, uh, you know, business people making cell phone calls or whoever making cell phone calls on uh, on planes are going to disrupt uh, going to disrupt the cabin. You know what I what I can see possibly is uh, you know during uh, during announcements, safety briefings, and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, you know, you won't be able to use your cell phone. Yeah. But uh, you know, what's the difference of uh, two business people having a conversation for the three hour flight? Or somebody, you know, speaking on the tel- uh, their cell phone. No difference. Uh, the only thing I can think of here, Glenn, is I remember being on a train from Ottawa to Toronto once, and I used to do the trip quite a bit on business. And, yeah. um, and I remember a guy being on the phone. 
and it, it got like several people told this guy to stop. Um, he was, you know, for one reason he had he had it ringing. He didn't have the vibrator on, so he was just ringing all the time. And people said, "You not? Can you not silent that? Can you not whatever?" And he wasn't even doing that. But even just listening to everybody around him was listening to everything that he was saying, and you could see how it irritated people. Yeah. Uh, can't you see this happening in the cabin of a plane? I mean, if you're stuck next to someone who's going to spend an hour on the phone yakking to somebody, I mean, it could get pretty noisy inside an aircraft. Well, it could. But, uh, you know, generally on any flight I've been on, a business person that sits next to you, they'll, they'll sit down, they'll, uh, they'll work for, you know, maybe an hour or two or whatever. And I'm the same way when I'm traveling, uh, traveling the skies that, uh, you know, you work for an hour or two, you know, make your phone calls, all that kind of stuff. Um, then you put it away, you have, uh, you have your meal or whatever, go for a snooze. Now, I guess everybody's going to have to uh, respect everybody in the air. Well, that's the whole point. How do you get everybody to do all of that at exactly the same time? I mean, yeah, will we, is that what we'll see maybe is, you know, the first half of the flight, you'll feel free to use your whatever, but in the second half, we're going to serve dinner, and then we're going to sleep, and everybody's going to shut their phone off. I mean, are we going to see that? Because no. I, I, I can't... You know, I, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of good questions. There's lots of, uh, I guess, regulations, if you will, or whatever, that uh, the aircraft... Uh, you know, uh, the aircraft companies are going to have to put in place. Um, maybe, maybe designating when you're booking your flight, designating uh, a portion of the aircraft. You know, you have your business class or quiet uh, zone class. Now you have your cell phone class. <laughs> <laughs> Can you, you know, see that? You know. But but you can see, Glenn. There's no way they're going to be able to implement that without I mean, having a, a some a, a real good set of guidelines or protocol of some sort. Because this is can't you see this is just a controversy waiting to happen? Well, maybe maybe I guess you could. Uh, you don't seem to be as you don't be seem to be as convinced as I am on this, Glenn. No, no. Well, right now, actually, uh, there's flights uh, in Europe and Asia that are allowing uh, cell phone uses. Or using of your cell phone on the, on on the flight, mm-hmm. and I haven't read in the news or heard in the news of any, uh, you know, any fisticuffs breaking out because of uh, cell phone use in uh, in those countries. So, who knows? It, it it may work, but again, it's uh, it's common sense, right? So, uh, do you think it's because the fact that everyone's doing it now that no one's going to care anymore? It's like the old uh, security cameras. Everybody used to care about those and being watched by Big Brother. Now everyone has one, so no one cares. Yeah, it could be. Could be, but again, like uh, like you say, you know that that train ride has uh, got to be a little respect. But you know, I've been on flights too, where you know, two business people you want to get a, you want to have a snooze, and two business people are talking yeah. all the time. You know, it's I don't think there's uh, there's much difference there. I wonder if I fell asleep next to the person, though, if I'd be as bothered as much by them talking as they would be by my snoring. <laughs> Maybe, and if you're bald, you just have to snore louder, maybe. <laughs> that's it. That's the, that's the only way to guarantee you're going to have no one placing a call next to you, is make sure you're allowed to snore. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's talk about overhead bags. And uh, I've got a buddy of mine that travels quite a bit, and as a result, he doesn't even use uh, luggage anymore. He's just he's got it down to a science. He can he can pack his life into a shoebox, and off he goes. That would uh, be my wife. Uh, no, see, my wife's the opposite. Whenever you see a plane taking off and the tail of it's dragging on the ground because it's overloaded and sparks are shooting, that's because my that's, wife's on board. That's your wife. That's yeah, my, my wife. My wife's like your buddy. She can uh, she can pack for a week in a bag and in an overhead compartment, no problem. So she doesn't have to check baggage. Wow, that's uh, beautiful. Traveling with her is, uh, 
is pretty good. You go, uh, you get through the airport pretty quick. So uh, obviously, since this has started and since they started charging for bags, uh, you can see more and more people doing this. More people are just traveling lighter, grabbing the bag and throwing it on, as opposed to having to wait the extra hour for the carousel and and all yeah. of that sort of stuff. How has that presented problems? Are we getting to the point where people are trying to put too much up there? That it's it's become again, we've just taken the lineup of the carousel and put it onto the plane. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Um, I was traveling. Uh, Sudbury, Toronto, Toronto, Vancouver, out to Whitehorse. And uh, the Vancouver flight, uh, again, back, and, and the Toronto flight out to Vancouver, um, you know, comes over the announcement waiting for the flight. Anybody with a carry-on bag, would you please, uh, you know, voluntarily check it so they could get it through. So most definitely everybody's, uh, because of the cost of it, um, you know, everybody's, everybody's going the carry-on route. Uh, I understand there's one airline in the States that's uh, getting rid of that altogether. What do you think, uh, what are your thoughts on that, getting rid of getting the Getting over- rid of the uh, carry-on bag? Yeah, the overhead thing. Yeah, well, it's, it's a good idea. Um, you know, you're weight limited, and that's, what, uh, that's what's kind of funny, that uh, you're weight limited, they, can, uh, they charge as long as they, uh, if they're charging, you can put pretty much as much weight in a, in a suitcase. But... Um, yeah, you'd have to limit you'd have to limit people with uh, with what they're uh, what they're bringing on. I just think it's uh, it's getting carried away, and they're going to uh, going to have to regulate it a little better. Uh, do you think there's any danger? Is there any danger in having uh, so much baggage in the overhead thing? I mean, you know, normally it's uh, people's coats and duty free and such. Is there a danger to having them up there? Well, I would say you know turbulence, all that kind of stuff. If uh, if the uh, the bins pop open, you're getting uh, you know weighted bags. Uh, uh, falling on top of people and what whatnot, people are definitely going to get injured. Uh, so again, regulations uh, to what you can carry and all that kind of stuff are are going to have to be put in place. And uh, you know, you only got so much room on a plane. And uh, it's funny when you get uh, overseas flights and uh, even some uh, domestic flights, uh, how much baggage everybody's trying to pack into this plane, and uh, the air carrier is trying to pack a lot of bags into the plane because they're making money. So, hmm. again, regulations have to be put in place for that. Uh, are airlines making money now? They say because the price of fuel has dropped so substantially that they are actually operating uh, in the black. Is that true, or is it still a, a pretty lean industry for margins? No, aviation is uh, is pretty lean. I know uh, with, uh, with uh, my consulting company, a lot of people... Uh, you know, they've asked me, you know, why haven't you bought a plane or why haven't you bought a helicopter? And uh, basically, there's no money to be made. Yeah. Um, yeah. Insurance is high. Uh, fuel's high. Uh, you know, pilots, wages, all that kind of good stuff. It's, it's definitely uh, margins aren't there to uh, to make a lot of money. Um, but uh, I think a lot of uh, a lot of airlines are just getting by. How long, uh, getting back to our original question, how long before we see a free-for-all on the phones? How long before uh, everybody will be chatting away? Uh, good question. Uh, I would say if, um, you know, if uh, the federal communication uh, people in the States and the CRTC uh, here in Canada, along with Transport Canada, lift the uh, lift the uh, the ban on use of cell phones. I, I'm going to say it's going to be immediate because, again, it's a uh, it's a good advertising uh, uh, for 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 an airline. 
that um, you know we allow cell phones on our planes, and everybody's going to you know that uh, airline. I was thinking about that, Glenn, because like if everybody isn't doing it, then all of a sudden, you know, as a marketing tool, uh, you could set up your whole airline as if you're catering to the business traveler, and you can do all that and anything you want. I mean, is there a, is there a niche market for that? There could be. Maybe you and I should uh, start an airline. That's it. And uh, and uh, you know, cell phones only. Uh, cell phones, free liquor, and smoking allowed again. That would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, you wonder how people used to do that. I can remember the day when people would smoke on airplanes. That you know, know. and know. nowadays to even think of that, you just shake your head. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a I'm a non-smoker, so yeah. You think of uh, being uh, cooped up in a cabin of a uh, of a plane for uh, for a couple hours and everybody smoking, it just. I just cringe. Do you think there's a market? I mean, we've seen things like Porter Airlines here in in southern Ontario and in Toronto that are catering to an upper-end business class uh, with a little bit more of the luxuries. Is there a market for that, for a big airliner to do that, for a big company? I would think so. Um, You know, ideally, ideally you definitely have to, uh, to cater to the business people you know, uh, design your plane or, or outline your plane in such a manner that uh, that uh, business people uh, can work while they're flying. I would think there's a good a good market in that. They just have to find the right aircraft and uh, uh, you know to uh, to get it going. All right, let's take a quick call here. Uh, Mark's on the line. Hang on for a sec, Glenn. Mark, what are your thoughts? Are you for for everybody yakking on the plane or not? Well, I I think uh, your interviewer interviewee. Uh, isn't up on the re- social psychological research that and brain pattern research uh, done in 2013 and 14, which shows that one-sided conversations have about 300 times more the distractibility than two-sided conversations. Our brains are wired to turn off two people talking to each other, but hearing only one side of a conversation is completely distractible and perhaps one of the most annoying things um, that people can encounter. <laughs> you know, I would have a tendency to agree with that, Mark. What are your thoughts, Glenn? Well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I haven't heard of that research, uh, but one-sided conversations, uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've heard lots of them, and they don't bother me. Well, you, you may not have a distractibility um, quotient attached to you, but in the, in the journal PLOS, uh, which actually looked at this, again, 2013, and mm. there's been follow-up research studies. I, I do some, uh, I'm in social sciences, and so, it is, as I said, infinitely distracting, because what happens is that in a two-sided conversation, you can think, okay, everything's fine, these people are talking to each other, I can ignore it. But in a one-sided conversation, your brain wants to finish the phrases and complete the conversation. So you can't help yourself you start listening in on it, and then you start completing the call and imagining what the other person is saying. So, so this that, is that just... Could, that could be free entertainment on a long, boring flight. <laughs> <laughs> Not if you're trying to read or do something else. <laughs> so you're just saying this is an accident waiting to happen, Mark. Yeah, it, it, it is an accident because that's just the way people are yeah. wired. So it's, wow. it's not an opinion in, the, in that sense that whether I like it or not, this is actually really solidly documented research. Wow. Uh, see, do you think, hang on a sec, uh, thanks for the call, uh, Mark, much appreciated. Do you think that, um, you know, uh, just like the thing about the cell towers, people are just, you know, should maybe use this information just to keep them the hell off the plane? Oh, yes. <laughs> 
Like just there make anything just make anything up. It seems to work nowadays. Yeah. All all right, uh, Mark. Thanks for the call. Much appreciated. Uh, obviously, Glenn. There's a lot of opinion on this sort of thing. Do you think it will be solved anytime soon? No, no. It's it's going to take a while, and like uh, like uh, every uh, regulatory body, you know, it's. To open it up, uh, free use of cell phones on planes, there's definitely going to be regulations have to put, be put in place. So, you know, probably within a year or two, I would think they're, uh, they may uh, they may do it. And then, of course, uh, for safety reasons and all that kind of stuff, uh, while Transport Canada and the FAA, they're going to have to, uh, you know, let the aircraft uh, companies come to them and say, okay, how are we going to regulate it? Yeah. Right? Good point. It should be interesting. Glenn Graham has been with us. Graham Aviation Consulting. Glenn, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. Take care. Yeah, you know, like, you know, as Glenn was saying, it's oh, it's about the uh, overloading the towers, the cell towers, and, and, you know, interfering with the plane. I think in the end, this will have absolutely nothing to do with the safety and the flying of the plane. It'll have to do with the passengers killing each other. I, you know, I, I think I think that's where the issue is going to be. Technologically, we'll be fine. That's not the problem. The problem is how do you get that phone that's just been implanted in that man's head from his neighbor? That's I think what the problem's going to be. And uh, I don't know. I think if you're bringing if you're bringing in uh, cell phones, you should bring back smoking and free booze. Those were the good old days of flying. Everybody just had a mild buzz on, so they didn't care what each other did. Hell, if it goes down, what does it matter about the floating seat and the oxygen mask? You're all going to perish anyway. So why not at least enjoy your flight and have a nice little cocktail party up there, a smoke and maybe a sideshow? This is what's truly missing in air travel nowadays. Too much... Now it's like riding a bus. Let's bring back the fun to air travel. And maybe this is the way. Allowing people to talk on their phones. And then when the fight ensues, everyone else can video record. Everybody else can record it. And then it'll be on Twitter before the plane even lands. Oh, man. Good luck with that. All I'm trying to do is get to Disneyland. Stop bugging me. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.